1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Minnie Sony, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Raul Diego rivera Hernández about his new book, Narratives of Vulnerability, on uh, vulnerability in Mexico's war on drugs, which was published by Paul Grabe in 2020, and which has just won the best book award of the Mexico section of the Latin American Studies Association, or LASA. He teaches at Villanova University and is the director of the Latin American Studies program there, and has been writing consistently on Central American migrations through Mexico and attacks on journalists there. Dr. Hernandez, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about yourself where you were born, went to school and college, and how this book took shape.
1: Thank you very much for the invitation to discuss my book for the New Books Network. Um, I, I am very happy to be, to be with you today. And, and let me just start with your first question. I was born in Mexico City in, uh, a few years ago, and, and I did my undergrad studies in the city of Merida, in Yucatan, And when I conclude my studies in Latin American literature and culture, I decided to start a PhD program in the United States at The Ohio State University. So um, the book is interesting from the perspective of that, the events that I'm talking about, the violence in my country, the ongoing human rights crisis, it's a phenomenon that happened during the time period that I was studying in the United States. President Felipe Calderón's um, declaration of the war on drugs was in 2006, in the month of December. And I was uh, starting my PhD in 2007 in, in August in, in Columbus, which was a completely different reality of what was happening in Mexico. Um, then when, when I concluded my, my studies, my, my dissertation, I had the opportunity to teach for three years at the University of South Carolina, and in 2015, I got the opportunity to teach at Villanova University. So the, the period of, of writing of this book was during the time that I was working at Villanova University. And it was also a time where I was already teaching different courses um, connected to narratives of the war on drugs in Mexico, connecting to uh, human rights uh, crisis in, in Latin America, and also connected to other kind of interests, which I I will be discussing later in my book, which are like immigration issues in in the context of Mexico, not only as a country who sends migrants to the United States, but also as a transit country for thousands of Central American migrants on their route to the United States. So in in, in that case, um, I was very much interested to combine uh, the situation that was currently happening in Mexico with the war on drugs and what was also happening to specific groups that I was very much interested at that time, like what was happening, for example, with migrants that were crossing the country in this specific dangerous time when we were having like major politics on border securitization. I was also very much interested in what was happening with journalists who were reporting in very dangerous areas of the country. And, and obviously the, the part that, that is very much connected to the book is what was happening to, to common citizens that were becoming victims of, of this violence in the country and transforming themselves in human rights activists and transforming themselves in the main leaders who were facing uh, this kind of violence and were trying to, to deal with this crisis with their own means.
0: Okay. When I was reading your book, I realized that you, actually you're a person of literature, but unlike other critical analyses of cultural products, you have heavily contextualized your work. You dwell less on the structure and form as usually happens and more on the events that gave rise to the texts you analyze. Did you feel there was an urgent need to do this? to evidence and draw attention to the Mexico of the last 15 years and the war on drugs. Novelists like Don Winslow and others have done this before, but you have combined theory, philosophy, and recent history in your reading of these varied cultural products. Tell us a little about the urgency you felt and which we sense in your pages as you detail to us the events surrounding Ayotzinapa and the history of rural teachers' colleges or the plight of Central American migrants in Mexico, what pushed you to combine activism with scholarship? And what led you into thinking that fiction had to be buttressed by a book for university students that would bring home to them the tragedy of Mexico today?
1: Uh, thank you for, for that um, question. I'm gonna try to answer it um, in, in different parts. I think um, the way that I can start responding to the question is that for me, it was like a necessary to understand the ongoing human rights crisis in Mexico. And the first thing I wanted to know is what does this mean? What does this mean when we speak about Mexico experiencing a current human rights crisis? We can see the data and it's very evident that we have this crisis because we have more than 80,000 people disappeared. Uh, we have more than 140 journalists that have been killed since 2000. Uh, we have 40,000 bodies unidentified in the morgues in Mexico. Uh, we have 11 to 12 women killed every day in the country, and and I can tell you more data uh, regarding this human rights crisis, but but that's just like the numbers, and and those are like very. Painful and, and and difficult numbers to understand. So for me, what was important was to to start reading other people who were writing about the human rights crisis in Mexico, and I found like very interesting works. For example, from the CIDE, which is a very important institute in Mexico, mainly focused on on economics, and they were elaborating a proposal for a public policy in the topic of uh, transitional justice in Mexico. So what what they were saying in this very interesting proposal is that for understanding what do we mean for human rights crisis, the first thing that we need to understand is that the severity of the crimes that are happening in Mexico are one of the main characteristics to understand this category of of human rights crisis. So we have forced disappearances and you explained very well the situation of of Ayotzinapa, uh, torture, and obviously the massacres, uh, San Fernando massacre, for example, in the case of the migrants. Uh, And then the other principle that highlights these high impact crimes are the murders, for example, to specific groups of people like journalists, activists, community leaders who defend human rights and, and these murders are, and these crimes have the intention to inhibit society and create this kind of intimidation to specific politicians and public servants. Well, so these, these kind of crimes have like a specific message to a specific target group. So from, from that point of view, I, I couldn't really speak about crimes committed to all these groups that I was just describing, but I was interested in this case to facing uh, the murders of journalists, the crimes against migrants, and also the violence against human rights activists in in the context of, of Mexico, so that was like the very first thing that I wanted to do, like to understand what does this crisis mean. And, and 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 this kind of work by the CIDE report helped me to understand that. The other aspect that I I was very much interested is like the history of the war on drugs, which is something that we don't usually pay too much attention when we a writing about uh, literature in, in our field. Uh, we usually start our first line saying the war on drugs started by President Felipe Calderon. And, and the war on drugs goes well far away from, from Felipe Calderon. The war on drugs has been there for uh, 50 years. Um, it started during the 1970s with a famous Discord by Richard Nixon and, and it has like a very interesting history in terms of the connection between the dirty war in Mexico, La Guerra Sucia México, that we experienced in the 1960s until the 1980s, and the relationship between the dirty war and the PRI, the Political Revolutionary Institutional Party in Mexico. And, and what we see is that the PRI was pretty much uh, adapting itself to the prohibitionist framework by the United States against the drugs for the United States the yeah. uh, the history or the the situation of the drug abuse in the country was not a public health issue it was a criminal justice issue and that's a very important aspect to understand because if if we start kind of perceiving uh, drug abuse not as a health Issue, but as a criminal issue, you're going to start seeing um, different scenarios where you're going to have persecution of minorities, like in the case of the United States, persecution of peasants, like in the case of Mexico, who were um, harvesting marijuana and amapola. And obviously, you're going to have a very important moralist discourse uh, imposed by the United States to the other countries, not that we should. Um, from the perspective of the United States attack these problems and see this problem as something that the world has to respond to and respond not as a public health issue, but respond as if it would be like a criminal justice issue. So you're going to see the the militarization strategies that Mexico is going to be adopting following the path of the United States prohibitionist uh, agenda. You're gonna see uh, Operation Condor not for the very first time in the southern corner, as most people think, but in Mexico with the very first border uh, operations, uh, Operation Condor and Operation Intercepción in the 1970s, and and that's a time when you start kind of seeing in a more detailed way crimes like forced disappearances, crimes like torture against peasants in some regions of La Sierra, in the north of Mexico, Sinaloa and Chihuahua. Uh, obviously uh, you have like this kind of military operations in 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 Sinaloa and 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 for me that was like a very important aspect to understand like the the origins of of the war on drugs not only thinking on what happened with president Calderon in 2006 but starting to trace those origins back to the Nixon era so from from that point of view I learned from the historians of of the history of the narcotraffic in Mexico, like Luis Astorga, uh, and Florian Enciso. So going back to this point of, of, of the war on drugs, uh, I also realized that this was not only like a national or regional issue, and to understand this kind of situation or context, it was necessary, this kind of international framework, and also the kind of cross-border relationship that we have with, with the United States. So from, from that point of view, um, I was also very much interested on on what national security paradigms became in the early 21st century and the late 20th century. And one of the, the most interesting aspects that I that I found in my research, and this is something that some other scholars like Osvaldo Zavala have described in their work, is that we have like a very interesting paradigm in, during the Cold War in, in, in the 1970s and and that paradigm was like a war against communists a war against leftist groups very clear and very uh, strongly developed by the United States in, in this kind of uh, hegemonic battle between the United States and the capitalist model and the communist model so that that started to lose some kind of power that started to lose some kind of uh, fuel in the 1980s, and, and what the United States did was somehow to recalibrate that narrative in a way of, we're not going to be attacking anymore communist groups or leftist groups, but we're going to put that specific attention to drug traffickers. So, so the drug traffickers in the 1980s, 1990s, and specific groups who were associated with drug trafficking like the guerrilla contras in, in Nicaragua, we're going to be the ones who are going to be targeted. So to being a leftist in the early 1980s, 1990s, it means that you were also a drug trafficker, like this kind of correlation between one model with the other. So from, from that point of view, it's interesting because in, in, in Mexico, the peasant groups who were in La Sierra uh, cultivating and harvesting marijuana and amapola, those are going to be targeted as if they were... Um, groups um, not only associated with left-wing politics but also with um, uh, with 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 this kind of terrorist approach the same thing happened in the state of Guerrero so for me it was also important to to give that specific context to o- understand like the evolution of, of the war on drugs through certain specific periods and then what what, what you discover reading different um, scholars from political science is that the Mexican or the so-called transition to democracy or the alternation of power after 70 years of the PRI having the control over every single aspect of the Mexican life, it's the moment when, when the drug trafficking organizations start winning power in, in, in different aspects of, of, of the Mexican um, political scenario. So the, the drug traffickers, according to, to Luis Astorga, they were subjugated to the political power during all this or most of these seventy years when the PRI dominated the political spectrum. They were very much in the hands of, of the politicians. The politicians had the control because the, the control was not only from the presidential power but from the governors in, in, in the state of in every single state of Mexico. So when, when you have started this political um, transition or, or, or changes of power when the PRI started losing some key governorships, key specific municipalities. And in 2000, when Vicente Fox became president of Mexico, the democratization of the country, which was supposed to bring a much more promising life for Mexicans became the moment when we start kind of seeing a deterioration of the quality of life of citizens affected by specific types of violence. And obviously, the, the moment when the government is trying to recuperate that specific control over those criminal groups, that's the time when we're going to see that 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 they have already lost it, and and that we have like a completely different scenario in the early 2006-2007 with with Felipe Calderon. So in, in in that case, Ayotzinapa, as as you were asking me as part of your question, it's a very interesting case because uh, Ayotzinapa. Um, give us like very interesting keys to understand uh, the current human rights crisis in the country. It fits with one of the principles that I was just describing. We have um, an operation to uh, force disappeared 43 students. We have uh, an operation where we see the participation of the state with, with all its power with the different municipal authorities of three regions of Witsuko, Iwala, and Cocula. You have the state police obviously participating there and the federal police like having monitor every single aspect of what was happening last night. And obviously the presence of the military, which I think it's key to understand what happened that night in, in, in Iguala in 2014. So you have the severity attacks with the coordination effort by, by these groups to uh, not only attack, but kill, and later disappear the students. And you also have something uh, that John Gibler has called the execution of the administrative disappearance, when all the process of starting to understand what happened in the came up with this kind of historical truth by uh, Murillo Karam, no? Murillo Karam saying that the students were kidnapped, that they were taken to the uh, Kokula Dumpster, and they were burned and throw their ashes to the dumpster and to the San Juan River. So that was like the explanation of, 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 the, of the case. And, and, and then you see that that this kind of execution of the, this administrative disappearance, as, as John Gibler explained it, it's another way of understanding that the violence that we're experiencing in the country, first of all, it's very complicated and very hard to distinguish who are the perpetrators of this violence because of the intersection of non-state actors and state actors. And second, the process of the victims for seeking truth and justice is another nightmare. And Ayotzinapa is one of the very best case scenarios where we can see this um, situation that Jude Gibler describes, and also the idea of the management of suffering, which is a concept by Ariadna Steves and other political analyst, um, and theorist of human rights, who speaks about the difficulties for the victims in the country for searching for truth and justice when we have very large numbers of impunity. We have impunity in the crimes against Central American migrants. We have 90% impunity in the crimes against um, random citizens. 97% in the case of of journalists. And obviously these these situations, what they only do is like kind of enlarge the violence in in the country. So in in that case, what what I was perceiving in, in this kind of context of understanding the human rights crisis, understanding the violence, understanding the history of the war on drugs, also lead me to understand the reasons why these crimes are still happening in the country and 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 the main reason unfortunately is the, the impunity of, of these crimes so um in in, in that way for me ayotzinapa and, and, and other cases that i discuss in the book uh, are, are like a very interesting way to approach uh, this specific phenomenon and for that reason i consider that every single work that i was going to be discussing must have this um contextualization before entering a more detailed discussion on the on the narrative in itself.
0: OK, I want to talk about the last point that you made. You argue for an empathetic understanding for the victims of the violence and their families, who are today still searching for their loved ones. This understanding, as you've said, should take into account how family members of victims have been transformed into professionals in their search for the forensic evidence of their loved ones. Is this empathetic understanding necessary in your view because the state has abdicated in its role of caretaker? As a commentator and your translator, Isis Sadek has said that in recent times, it has become increasingly clear that there are no two sides in this war. There's just one side. Certainly, what has come to light in recent months, like the involvement of Gennaro Garcia Luna, makes it clear that there have been major cover-ups in recent Mexican history.
1: Um, Well, I think also to to start answering your question, um, one of the books that really speak to me when I was working on, on my book, uh, was Cristina Rivera Garza's book Dolerse, Textos desde un país herido. And, and in this book, uh, Cristina does something very interesting. Like It's it's not like fiction, as, as, as her previous novels, that we may be more familiar. It's more like um, like a political essay, I would say, political philosophical essay about the violence in the country. And she has like a very interesting um concept which is the state without God celestado Sin entrañas and as, as as you know very well Cristina Rivera garza is is also obsessed with with this idea of of, of the historian of of documenting of of the archive so in, in in this kind of very interesting research that she does and she performs she founded um the letters in the 1930s I believe of of a woman whose... Uh, Dying in a hospital in a northern region of Mexico, she's alone. She has like no family. She has like no friends. She, she has like nobody to take care of her guts. That's how she explains it. So in in, in this kind of being worried about herself, of what's going to happen with my body if, if I die, she writes a letter to the governor of of, of the state. She writes a letter to this politician. Hoping that she will receive an answer of what's going to happen with her remains, and 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 if possible, if they could take care of her remains. In a very interesting scenario, you have a response from the government. Um, she doesn't give too much details of what kind of response, but there was somebody who answered to the letter. There was somebody who was like taking care of 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 at least having the decency to respond to her concerns. So what what Cristina Rivera Garza describes in this anecdote is that we, we have in this kind of post-revolutionary Mexico at least one example, very small, very specific about the state who cares about the guts of the of the citizens. So what, what we have right now is, is what Cristina Rivera Garcia is, is a state that has abandoned its duty to care for the bodies of its citizens, no? to opting instead for the economic gains and the perpetuation of capitalist violence than, than taking care of, of us as if it's his, its main responsibility. So in, in, in that way, I, I, I like this, this anecdote very much because it made me think about vulnerability, which is another important concept that I discuss in the book. It's, it's a question of God's. It's a question of God's in, in two different ways. In one hand, the guts are the organs and refer to those bodies that have been labeled as subject to extermination in a process of social cleansing that classifies them as collateral damages and lives that do not deserve to be grieved. And this is very clear with, with Felipe Calderon's speech of the collateral damages uh, that the deaf people were involved in some kind of crime. So they were not considered grievable lives, as, as Judith Butler would say. But on the other hand, you have these caring for these bodies as a symbol of of the visceral relations, uh, of these kind of relations with guts that emerge from the experience of loss. So I have seen that very much in in the work of documentary filmmakers, on the work of the Hiei, which was uh, this kind of group of experts, interdisciplinary experts who were um, investigating the crimes uh, of Iwala in 2014. And and what I see in this, in this kind of very interesting works is this kind of relationships with the families, relationships with the people, relationships that go beyond the idea of small circle of victims who support each other. Like these are like larger circles where we have community of experts, where we have... Uh, human rights activists, where we have people that are solidarity with, with these specific groups assuming the role of accompanying the victims of, of human rights. And, and this is very clear in the case of Mexico. So for me, it's, it's, it's very important, this idea of, of care and being cared in, in the context of, of, of the war on drugs since we don't have a state to protect us, since the state become one of the main um, actors of violence against its own citizens. Um, the, the, the work of, of uh, Don Paley in this case, it's, it's very important when she claims that the war on drugs, it's against the most vulnerable ones, it's, it's against the people, it's against the the, the the peasants, it's against the community organizers, it's against indigenous groups. So for, for me, that was like a very clear message of, of the necessity to start understanding the war on drugs, having empathy with different groups of victims, uh, having this kind of understanding of what they're going through, and also understanding the processes that they experience in their search for justice and truth, where we can connect it again with this kind of uh, administration of suffering that they experience since the state never responds, or most of the time never responds to their demands for truth and justice.
0: Do you think that the elites in Mexico are oblivious to the rising death toll as it affects largely the northern states? Of course, the murder of Javier Cecilia's son changed that to some extent, but should there be greater national empathy for the victims of violence in Mexico?
1: I think, yes, the, um, the situation of Mexico, it's Interesting in in the way that we have to start asking the question why the lack of empathy with the victims in in Mexico and and one of the main reasons and, and this is also important for the chapter where I discuss the work of uh, journalists in Mexico and the crimes against journalists is that we're lacking investigation about those people who are killed who are disappeared we have like no information about who are these victims, what happened to them. Um, so from, from that point of view, it's, it's very different to have a face of the victims, like the one of, of, of Juan Francisco Sicilia. We knew who he was, Juan Francisco Sicilia. We knew that he was the son of the poet, Javier Sicilia. We knew that he was a young, promising, and successful young man, in in Mexico. We knew that he came from a family that that was educated, a father who was a well-known and established figure in the political and and philosophical, journalistic, and literary field. So from from that point of view, uh, there was a backup about who was this victim. Um, We knew also who were the people who were killed in in that specific uh, assassination, the friends of, of of the victim, we have their names, we have uh, a lot of information, but we don't have those details for other victims. We don't even have the right names sometimes in the newspapers because they, they didn't spell it correctly. Most of these victims are dehumanized and instead of having names, they have different adjectives, descuartizado, eh, descabezado, encobijado, so in, in, in that way the the, the work of, of journalists in Mexico has become very important in the process of, of starting a process of humanization of the victims. So start or start kind of collecting their stories, start of collecting the testimonies of the families, start accompanying the processes for truth and justice. And and I can give you a very good example in, in this case, like the work of, of, of John Gibler. Uh, again, I'm gonna quote him when when he wrote this exceptional book of Historia Oral de la Infamia. What, what he does in, in this book is just collecting the testimonies of the survivors of Ayotzinapa on 2014 of September 2014. And by collecting those stories, he pretty much gives us like a very interesting uh, rompecabezas of, of what happened that night. But we're only listening to the survivors. We're not listening to the political authorities, we are not listening to the experts, we are not listening to anybody else but the voice of the survivors. And that's a very important aspect that I want to to highlight. If, if we want to have and create stronger relationships of empathy, relationships with guts, going back to the point of Cristina Rivera Garza, we need to know exactly who are these victims, what happened to them, and, and, and we need to understand that, that we cannot make divisions about which lives are deserved to be grievable and which lives do not deserve to be grievable. So that's, that's something I, I, I wanted to highlight. The other aspects, and this is very much connected, is uh, Cecilia Sosa in a very interesting work uh, in Argentina about the groups of victims connected to forced disappearance in, in the dictatorship. Uh, she starts talking and discussing a concept called extended communities of mourning. So the idea of extended communities of mourning is to remove or to expand, I want to say it in a better way, to expand the relationships that we can establish with the victims and not only connect those issues to specific groups, to specific victims. So what, what she's kind of saying is that the, the forced disappearances in Argentina are not only an issue for Abuelas de Plaza de Mayo, not only an issue for uh, Madres de Plaza de Mayo. It's, 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 it's a national issue. It's, it's an issue that everybody needs to take part of. Everybody needs to push for an agenda for truth, for justice, reparation, etc. So it's something that should go more and, and, and extend more the circle of, 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 of the victims. So in, in that case, I think we, we really need some kind of politics of, of, of pain, huh? that, that the politics could also be connected with affects, with care, with guts, again, with Cristina Rivera Garza. So uh, I also have like this kind of very much, um, like this, this saying from the mothers and the fathers who are searching their missing relatives, no? I'm searching my son, my daughter, uh, and in the process, I have found the sons and daughters of, of other families, which is something very beautiful, no? that they are not only searching for their missing loved ones, but the missing loved ones of, of everyone. Oh, yeah. They could find the remains, they could find the bones of everyone in, in, in this country that, that we are very much um, seeing that has become in, in this kind of clandestine rape, as some people have called it. Another important aspect that that I see with this uh, relationship with the with the empathy is that um, vulnerability we usually connected with which populations are more susceptible or are much more um, closer to being physically hurt to being to suffer some kind of damage. That's pretty much. The, the way that we have associated vulnerability and, and, and we try to reduce vulnerability the most that we can. And, and I understand that point, no? We, we obviously want to reduce risks and vulnerability for the work of journalists in the country, but also what I'm trying to do in, 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 in one of the chapters of the book where I speak about the families of the disappeared is to connect vulnerability to our openness to be affected by others. And and I'm using here um, the work of of, a feminist scholar, which speaks about an ethics of vulnerability in in a way that that we should be open to the pain of others. We should be open to respond to others' specific situations and not just looking for ourselves in a way that that we are completely unable to to answer to those uh, claims from, from the victims which is what happened in reality with, with the Mexican state, no? We have a Mexican state who is not responding to those specific needs, who's not responding to the search for truth and justice for those families. So in, in, in that way, we have a completely uh, unempathetic state whose lack of vulnerability uh, in the way that I'm describing it doesn't allow it to have like this kind of guts relationship that I was talking before with the citizenship.
0: Okay. Now, in the last 10 minutes that we have left, you have talked about various cultural products in Mexico. You've analyzed them. And can you tell us a little about these works of fiction, which they're works of fiction, but they're cultural products. And according to you, do they best reflect the situation of Mexico after 2006? Or are there any more, which you would also include, which have come out after that? Because... You, actually, your work begins as an analysis of these cultural products, right? And then you diverge and you amplify the whole thing and you contextualize it and you give us a lot of information. And thus, your book has almost uh, can be a kind of textbook in universities as well because it serves various purposes because you've brought together philosophy, history, literary theory, and novelists. So, can you tell us a little about this aspect?
1: When, when I was writing uh, my book, I I was, as I mentioned before, having many different readings from people from political science, human rights, um, cultural anthropologists who had been very important in the kind of work that I'm doing. And at the same time, I was reading most um, nonfiction works and I was watching a lot of documentaries about the, the war on drugs in Mexico and, and the victims of, of Mexico. So from, from that point of view, uh, for me it's a little bit hard to tell you which are like the best works of fiction that uh, speak to me. Uh, I, I would say that that for me it's still very important Roberto Bolaño's work of Dos Eze uh, specifically talking about the section of the femicides in Ciudad Juárez because even though it was published in 2003 somehow gives us like, a very interesting and the of, of what's gonna happen with the country in, in many, many ways. Like Ciudad Juarez becomes this kind of laboratory or Santa Teresa where the crimes against women are a very good example of many of the situations that we're currently uh, having in, in Mexico. No, We have not only a war against drugs or war on drugs, we have also war against women. We have also, as part of that war against women, uh, 11 to 12 femicides, as I explained before. We're also having 99% of those femicides unresolved uh, with, with no answers. So we have a state that, that is perpetuating this kind of uh, violence against uh, a group like, like, like women. And, and we also have this kind of uh, relationship between the um, um, criminal organizations and, and state actors. So for for me in, in in that specific scenario, it's it's important to to see what Roberto Bolaño was describing in that specific part of, of his book. Seis, Seis. Um the other important um, author that I really uh, think gives like a very interesting perspective of this issue is Victor Hugo Rascombanda. Victor Hugo um, was was born in Chihuahua in in, in La Sierra Tarahumara and and he was a lawyer and and part of his work is very much contextualized from the perspective of a son who's kind of living in a family of lawyers who have to deal with several issues connected and related to uh, situations of violence in the Sierra Tarahumara in the state of Chihuahua. Uh, And that's a very interesting Part of the country, La Sierra Taromara, because this is one of the regions that has experienced the largest numbers of violence even before the beginning of the drug war. When we, uh, before having this kind of explosion of violence in the country, we used to have like this kind of phrase, well, yeah, there's violence in Mexico, but this is happening in La Sierra, no? So the the, the metaphor of La Sierra was always, it was too far away, this was never gonna come to the city, this was an issue that was happening. Uh, between very specific groups and, and I think it was also like a very um, derogatory way to, to say it, La Sierra, because it was like an issue of peasants, campesinos y narcotraficantes, no? So in, in, in that way, those those identities were labeled as criminals. So what what, what he's kind of saying in in in, in this kind of, 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 of books, not only in his uh, work of contrabando, but also in some of his stories de Volvera a Santa Rosa, he's kind of Explaining of the relationship between the political power, the 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 drug traffickers, the relationship also between the producers of, of marijuana in uh, Anamapola and, and Ataromara, and the different kind of crimes that, that that we're seeing in these specific areas of the country, the the levels of violence that that we are still kind of processing that were happening even before 2006 and, and and for me that's a very important kind of work that that he's he's doing in in, in this specific context to to give us also some kind of uh preliminary approach of, of what was happening in 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 the country um i also um like very much Sara uribe's work on González. Uh, it's a, it's a very interesting piece. Uh, it, it could be read as poetry. Uh, Sara Uribe explained that, that she tried to create some kind of piece to be performed in the context of the San Fernando massacres in the state of Tamaulipas. And, and what the, the large poem uh, explains is the trajectory of, of a very well-known character, Antigona, as part of this kind of Sophoclean tradition but tracing the figure of Antigona through the Latin American tradition, no? how the character of Antigona has been adapted to different contexts, like in the case of, of Argentina and the search for disappeared in Argentina, or for example, in the case of Cuba, against the censorship, etc. So what, what I see with, with Antigona Gonzalez, it's like a very interesting process of uh, combining different literary traditions, also different essay traditions, Focusing on the on the character of Antigona Gonzalez as, as somebody who's seeking for um, the missing loved one. It's not Antigona of Sophocles whose, whose main conflict is to give a proper burial to her two brothers. But Antigona Gonzalez is is is, is, is it, she doesn't have she doesn't have the body of, 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 uh, of, of, he, of her of her brother. She's searching for for the body, which gives like a like a different approach to Antigona. But she's also going against the the laws of the state. She's also going against the narrative of Felipe Calderon, who's pretty much reminding us every time that he was speaking that those people didn't deserve like a proper burial. Those people were uh, killed because they were involved in something. So in, in in that case, I think it's it's like an excellent work. And and obviously, um, I, I I follow very closely the the emergence of the movement, Movimiento um, por la Paz, por Justicia y Movement for Peace and Justice with Dignity by Javier Cecilia. And he wrote uh, an autobiographical novel, um, El Deshabitado. And this is like a very interesting novel because it has like very personal passages of, of, of his process of, of, of mourning uh, his son, the process of creating the movement with the victims, with, without even thinking that he was going to be leading that movement, his spiritual crisis, but also speaking about the political crisis of the country, and I think that's a very important aspect to to highlight the the the, the way that the victims were able to emerge after being silenced, after being marginalized, after being uh, completely neglected from the political spectrum. It was one of the main. Victories of of the movement for for peace and justice um, that uh, Cecilia led for for some years, and, and and in that way that the novel gives you like a very interesting um, relationship of, of this kind of perspective of the personal is always political. From that point of view, I can give you like a list of of of, of major works um, that are nonfiction. For example, uh, Cristina Rivera Garza I mentioned before. Uh, Chronicles by Daniel Arrea, I think, are, are exceptional. Um, other works by uh, Marcela Turati, I think, are, are excellent. And, and what I think it's, it's very much important to, to read and become aware right now is something that I'm uh, exploring more in depth are uh, documentaries on forensics. But, but these kind of forensics are not the traditional forensic experts, the accredited experts that we see with the Equipo de Antropología Forensic in Argentina, or in other countries like Guatemala or Peru, these are like the relatives of the families, of the disappeared ones. These are the mothers searching the bones of their children, who have been uh, assuming the responsibilities of the state of searching their missing loved ones, who have become human rights activists, who have become forensic experts, who have been documenting what is happening in... The exhumation of mass graves where uh, hundreds of people had been uh, buried I- illegally, uh, without following the right protocols, like in the case of Tetelzingo, in the case of Kokutla. So we have like these very important roles assumed by different uh, family members who had completely changed their lives since their missing loved ones. Uh, disappeared so for for me the kind of work that has been done by independent journalists independent media uh, the work that has been done by uh, filmmakers um, it's 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 an important step to to become much more aware of, of this current human rights crisis from the perspective of the disappearances and also from the forensic emergency and and humanitarian crisis that we're living due to the to, this, to the situation that, that we have in the country.
0: Okay. Thank you very much, uh, Raul, Diego Rivera, Hernandez, for this very engaging talk. I haven't read a book like this in years, and um, which has captured my attention, and I hope this also holds good for the rest of the public who reads it. I do hope it becomes a part of the university syllabi. Thank you so much for your time, and we, we will meet again. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much. And, and, and I really appreciate that you take the time to, to read the book and to formulate these uh, very important questions.